Welcome to Video Store. My name is Sam Mulberry. Today we are talking about the 1967 Jacques Tati film Playtime. So let's step into Baird Fisher's Video Store. Baird, how you doing? Bonjour. Doing well. <laughs> uh, Barrett, I loved this movie. This is, um, I will say... I tried to, I watched this on my own and then I was trying to describe to my wife and my daughter, the movie. And I kept needing to say like, but trust me, it, it is a movie. Like, like I, I, cause I, cause it's, it's one of those things that's almost impossible to explain to somebody without, like, I feel like I would need to draw pictures to explain like, okay, you have to understand he's doing this and he's doing this, but it's also really entertaining and really interesting and really funny. And it has things to say. Uh, I was floored by this movie. Yeah, it doesn't fit into a genre, and it doesn't create a genre. Right, I, that's exactly I, what Ebert said. Yeah, yeah, and I agree with that. I, th- I think, you know, there aren't many things you can say are sui generis. Um, I mean, you can draw connections between Tati and other traditions, right? In some ways, you could say that he's a kind of, uh, he's a kind of modern, he's kind of a reinvention of Buster Keaton. You know, he's kind of making, he's doing physical comedy, nearly silent films in a time of uh, of sound, but he's doing it much differently than anybody else's. Yeah. Done it. Um, so maybe let, let, let's let's start with Tati broadly, and then we'll 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 come down to uh, to playtime. What is your history with him as a filmmaker, and particularly what I'm interested in is. Was Playtime the first thing you saw from him, or did you see other things before you saw this? Yeah, no, Playtime is actually the most recent thing I've seen from him. I've wanted, I've been working up to Playtime. Perfect. So that's exactly that's exactly what I was hoping for because I have so many questions. So I'm gonna let you I'm gonna let you talk now. But that <laughs> I that was hoping for that experience because my experience by definition is gonna be the opposite. That yeah, this is yeah. the first thing that I saw. Yeah, so you know, I started with uh, Jour de Fête, the uh, uh, and then I did um, Monsieur Hulot's uh, vac- vacation, uh, and actually, Sam, that was I. I thought about that as the film for this week because that's sort of the one that either that or Uncle. Those are the two films people often think of as the classic Tati films because those have Monsieur Hulot at the center of them, and in fact. No less a director than David Lynch uh, has listed *My Uncle* as, uh, as one of the greatest films of all time. So those are kind of the the typical Tati films in that Monsieur Hulot is the, is the center of the of those films, um, and he's very entertaining. He also, if you watch, you can see it from *Playtime*. He's the inspiration for Mr. Bean, uh, Rowan Atkinson's character, and but Tati wanted to get away from that from that character, the centrality of that character. I mean, after his greatest international success with my uncle, he, he said, I don't want to do something that's centered on Hulot anymore. So Hulot is still here. And I have to confess, I keep wanting more of Hulot, but, but that's not what he's trying to do. So it's kind of a, it is kind of an evolution of his, of his approach where he wants to expand the world beyond. Let's just see what this one bumbling character is doing and let's look more, more broadly. So it's very ambitious in that sense. And then I definitely got that sense from reading about this, this movie um, and getting, you know, that this is like, like you said, I think evolution's the right way to think about it. How is this similar to either of those two films that came before? Uh, it's yeah, it's similar in a lot of ways. I mean, obviously, incidentally, maybe we could say Monsieur Hulot. It's also similar in that um, he he also is not particularly interested in dialogue. There's less dialogue in playtime than any of his other films, or maybe I should say, there's less dialogue that really has a lot to do with the plot. I mean, there's people talking in the background. Uh, it's actually an English script by Art Bookwald. Um, but but there's that doesn't really much matter. So I think that's also consistent. And then the and of course we've saw this in the Triplets of Belleville, which is one of the reasons why I wanted to move on to uh, to Tati, the director of Triplets of Belleville. His next film, as I may have mentioned last week, was The Illusionist, based on a script that Tati never never produced. Um, the other thing I think it's and and this is really interesting to me. Both Wes Anderson and David Lynch have named Tati as an influence. And you would think right away, well, for them, for at least for Anderson, that must mean the visual element. But they both cite his use of sound. And I think that's what's really remarkable about this, this film. And it's why it's a little contradictory in a way, to say, or, or paradoxical to say it follows in the silent film tradition, because sound is so important in this film. Uh, just to pick out one, one example... Uh, when you're uh, early in the airport scene, when the American women are coming in and everything is supposed to be very orderly, Monsieur Hulot drops his umbrella 
and it rings out like a gunshot and everybody turns on and looks because and this is another hulo theme because it's not it's not following with the with the societal order that playtime ultimately is sort of attacking so i think that that use of sound and then finally just the use of wonderful you know visual gags where he tries to get you to make connections of things that look disconnected so i think a key scene of that is the women in the in the hotel in in the in the uh restaurant they're wearing the american women they're wearing those hats with flowers and when the waiter comes over to pair the pour the champagne uh uh tati deliberately locates it so they're holding their glasses and the waiter has the champagne bottle up high and it looks like he's watering their hats so those kinds of uh i guess you would call it playing with perspective uh tati is very interested in that so in that sense it has all the, a lot of the marks of a typical tati film it's interesting that the thing about sound i mean obviously sound because he doesn't cut a lot and because he shoots things in mid and, and really often wide the sound draws your attention to the to things because if you don't have that like uh, me not knowing who uh hula was like i that's not a character that has any meaning to me like i didn't notice that character until the umbrella dropped and i'm like oh there's a guy there and he <laughs> dropped an umbrella it's like you know it's like the sound cues you and also even just the sound of people's footsteps in that airport, because the airport is so spacious and sparse and quiet. And so much of that is about watching people walk in these often straight lines and, and things mm -hmm. like this. And, and you're listening to this conversation, but the footsteps keep pulling you over there. And the, and the characters keep looking back at the footsteps too, just in that, in that opening shot in the airport. Yeah. The sound design is something I've increasingly getting interested in, in terms of how, how people use that. Um, so here's my question. If Playtime was the first uh, Tati film somebody had seen, do you think it you could go back and watch those others? Or would you feel like I'm <laughs> evolutionarily, evolutionarily walking backwards? It's like, oh, like, like, because this has such scale and ambition and scope to it that I can't imagine those other films have that. Do you think they would play strangely if you're like, because I love playtime and I'm really curious to see uh, other Tati films. But my concern is like, well, have, is this like the pinnacle? And then I'm like climbing down to see the others, if that makes sense. Yeah, that, 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 that's a that's a good question, um, Sam. And it's it's kind of a subjective response, I suppose. But no, I think if you prepare yourself and you say, well, the earlier films, first of all, they're going to be black and white. They're not going to be 70 millimeter. They're on a different scale. But I think they have the same delights. Uh, even if it's on a different scale, they have the same delights that Playtime has. And I think you will find Monsieur Hulot a really engaging character. Uh, and I think the various situations that Tati creates for him um, are, are equally engaging as Playtime is. But just I, I guess I would say it's on a it's on a smaller scale, mm -hmm. uh, but, it, but, it, but it works in a similar way. Oh, I will say it is interesting because, again, reading about Hulo, you realize like, OK, this is a character who people have a history with and not having that history. It's so interesting in this movie to be like, why that guy? Like, mm. like other than like he definitely is this um, fish out of water in these worlds. But 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 it's interesting to think other people are watching this with at least a familiarity with him even if they don't know i don't know how much you know about him from those other films but it feels like this is a person who has a a past and people have an experience with i just i just not even people in the movie have more experience with him than i do because people i love the like the fake hulos where, where where it's like oh is that him and then he turns around and it's like nope in fact that's not and the person's upset that they thought that it was him and I, I, I also love the faux hulos, and I think that that is, in fact, um, that is Tati's playful tweaking of the audience, right? Like, you know, I know you guys are watching this film, and you want to see more of Monsieur Hello, but he's not. No, I'm sorry, he's not going to be there. And there's at least three. There's at least mm -hmm. three or four fake hulos. It's yeah, it's quite wonderful. So, um, one of the the, the uh, reasons, I mean, there's lots of reasons why he shoots this in 70 millimeter, shoots it in wide. And, and medium and wide um but partially it's because he wants you to explore the space with your eyes and it's such a uh intentionally designed space i mean he built uh, you can't read about this movie without reading about tativille this mm -hmm. you know uh i think set of a of a couple buildings and yes. so like like 
and at a huge huge expense uh this was a, this was the most expensive french film at the time that it was made um and and uh What's interesting about those spaces is they're especially early on, especially the office building, I think, is built to like confound the characters, but also confound the audience. There's moments where where like you're you're I'm looking at it and I'm uh trying to take it all in. I am playfully frustrated with things I can see and can't see. And there's moments where characters, like I think about the wide shot of the cubicles where where you're up on the floor above looking down and you can see into all of them and you're seeing people move around and like Hulot disappears behind a wall for a while. And it's like, Wait, wait, he's the he's the guy I'm following and now you've taken him off the uh, out of the frame and now I'm watching this other thing, but I keep looking back to see if he's going to show back up and like I that stuff was it this made me be an active viewer in a way that um other films make me be an active viewer in different ways. This visually made me be very active. I actually started it uh on an late one evening and I realized like I don't have the energy to stick with this so i had to watch it in the morning because of that i have to be sharp to be looking at everything on the screen well you know to to kind of connect them to uh to a tradition we talked about earlier the deep focus tradition of greg tolland and, and orson wells of course that's what the first thing you think about is you know you've got such deep focus and so you can spend your time looking at the background or the foreground and and where should you look and so i think tati is doing a couple different things there first of all it, it's one of the ways in which uh, a film can be a little bit more like uh, a theatrical performance. You know, when I used to teach Shakespeare, I would tell students when, you know, when you're watching a theatrical production, don't just look at the people who are talking, look at, look at the people in the background, look at what else is going on, look at how they're responding. So Tati builds that in, but of course he's not trying to replicate theater. He's trying to replicate real life. And that was the other reason why he does the wide is that when we look at people in real life, we don't only see their heads or see them from the shoulder up, right? We see that we tend to see their whole bodies. Even if we're talking to a person, we're still conscious of their entire body. So that's the other reason he wants to do those those wide and those long shots because that's much more the way we we experience uh, experience the world. Um, and I do love you know the the cubicle scene that you referred to. A couple things that are interesting to me there. One is uh, that ex- that shot up above the cubicles is very reminiscent of a famous shot in Orson Welles' The Trial, where there's this huge space filled with all these people sitting at their desks. The other thing I love about it, of course, and it's one of the themes we'll talk about, is it is it really connects that theme of communication or lack of communication in the modern world, because you have these two people 50 yards apart from each other talking on the phone uh, from, from, from the cubicle. And so you have this literal kind of um, literal separation of people who can't manage to find the possible who can't manage to to find themselves face to face and of course that's hulo and jafard for about 20 minutes of the film they just can't seem to simply connect with each other face to face well and the other funny thing about that is you realize uh the person who goes and gets the information walks to the cubicle they're in pulls out a drawer attached to that cubicle walks back to his own calls them back and tells them where they're <laughs> physically closer to the information than than he is um and that yeah it, it, you know and i will also say that i mean this this movie is also a a uh, you know, commentary on the modern world, uh, mm. especially on the modern business world, on the way architecture shapes that, which I think is in part why he wants to build these sets, because this is a time when France and particularly Paris is modernizing. Um, and 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 uh, Tati sees the sort of the death of a version of Paris that he loves. Um, and so there is this sort of little pinches of dystopian things to this. And the, and even the idea of being up on the second floor at a spot where you can observe everyone working, you know, that, that has a, that has a darker dystopian feel to it. I mean, <laughs> I, I, I don't remember if I talked about this ever on this podcast, but I, I one summer uh, before college worked in a factory where the factory floor was on one side of a wall and then there was a giant glass wall and all of the management offices overlooked the factory floor. Mm. And, I, and you worked these 12 hour shifts knowing people were constantly observing you mm. and making sure you were doing like, like, so there is, there's also this, like this, this, this sense of like, you are in the position of the observer, but somebody else could be observing these people working too. Like I, I like it, it made me think of that. It made me think of the, the sort of the power of observation on people uh, in terms of how this set is built. 
Yeah, and I, I also think that even though there are satirical elements in, in uh, or critical elements in Tati's earlier films, especially Mononcle, uh, this film is much sharper in its critique of modern life. And you've touched on at least one of them, uh, Sam, which is, is the architecture. And uh, Tati, Tati responded, somebody, somebody talked about that, about the fact that his films don't have any structure and that they don't have any plot structure. And and Tati said a couple things about that. One of which relates to architecture. One is which, of which is if you watch Playtime, you go and you alluded to this. You go from people following these very straight lines as though they are kind of controlled by the architecture, uh, and you also have these sort of empty spaces, uh, these vast empty spaces with glass and steel. And by the end of the film, you have people in very close proximity. Look at how. Uh, crowded the restaurant scene gets and you have them moving in circles you have them dancing and then of course at the end you have that great carousel effect of the uh of the of the of the traffic jam so i think that uh that's one of the ways in which he's using space as a commentary both on what is what is what is problematic about modern life modern architecture uh and and then how that actually can still be kind of overcome uh you know by more more congenial spaces like the drugstore uh the drugstore at the end yeah it was uh philip kemp said that the plot of the movie is how the curve comes to reassert itself over the straight line um and 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 so so that's one of those things that i i loved about this movie and i didn't necessarily expect uh you know, living in the 21st century i am very used to reading things which talk about the dangers of modernity and technology and machinery and these types of things so i part of me was like oh is that what this is going to be this movie is like i said it has pinches of the, the dystopian um it's definitely has absurd the, the absurdity of modernity but at the same time it is not a bleak movie it is a no. movie that that is about joy and not only like do we come to this this sort of um conquering of the straight line by the curve because the, the the end definitely moves in that direction but even in moments like that like what, what we were just talking about that office scene like he's sort of saying if you pay attention there is humor all around us you know but part of it is like is 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 noticing those things so he's i feel like this is uh this is instructing you how to look which um the, the one year that i taught art i remember telling my students that, that i can teach you to do a lot of things the most important thing i hope we get better at this year is learning how to look at things because that's going to be the key to making art and understanding art and and i feel like he is this is a this is a film that trains you to pay attention to look and probably to watch it again and look for more things and, and that and that's actually one of the reasons why why tati is not interested in plot because if you think about plots especially you know plots in particular genres uh, they they create they create expectations, and so you're anticipating that. Oh, I know what's going to happen next, or I wonder what's going to happen next to this character or this relationship. And Tati says, "Well, if you do away with that, and the audience has no idea what's coming next, I mean, I, I think that's the case about this film. I mean, I, I, I challenge you to to identify a particular scene where you could say to yourself, "Oh, now this is happening, so X is going to happen next." It cannot be done. You have no idea. Just like in the same way, I don't walk around during my life thinking during my during my day thinking, "Well, now that I've done this, the next thing is going to happen." I mean, maybe I know what's going to happen next, but my, most of the time I don't. So, so Tati says this gives the audience time to laugh because you can He's he's kind of forcing you. It gets back to what you're saying about looking carefully, Sam. He's kind of telling you just live in the moment. Look, is that funny? How does that strike you? Look at what's going on. And so it's it's interesting that Tati actually said he thought that in a sense his film his films actually began for the audience after they left the theater. In mm -hmm. other words, it was like he says, "I want the film to begin after you leave the theater because he wants to he wants to kind of revitalize the way you you look at life." In the same way that you're trying to get your students to think think more about how they look at a work of art. Well, and one of the things that I noticed in in in, in looking at this is uh, you talked about like like he doesn't want you to worry about anticipating, right? And my favorite things in this movie is he is constantly making a small joke that feels like it's going to be a setup to a bigger joke or setting up a joke he doesn't deliver on because he realizes it's just as funny for you to 
the the joke that I'm going to play is I'm going to give you the setup without the punchline. So I'll give two examples of this. One in the nightclub scene, one of the first things that we see uh, as we explore the space is that the one way it's either the waiter or the manager walks across the dance floor and the one tile sticks to his floor. And then we see the other guy slop on a bunch of glue and put it down. And you're like, okay, this is coming back. I, I know about callbacks. I Every time somebody walked across that dance floor, I'm like, okay, is this one it's going to be? So I, I hone in on that <laughs> and you see people step around it. You see, and you realize like by the end, he never made that joke. He never went back to it, even though. And then, and the other is, is towards the very end when they're at the store before the carousel, Hulot kicks a sponge over to the cheese thing accidentally and then puts it. It's like, okay, well, clearly somebody's going to buy that and we're going to see somebody eat a sponge. Never happens because yeah, yeah. he doesn't need to make the joke. He's already made it. Yes. Yes. And it's like, it, so, so there is this sense of like, he, it's, 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 a, it's, all, it's an economy of humor too. It's like, well, okay, you know that joke. So I'm not going to give you that. Instead, I'm going to give you all these other things, but you might want to keep looking over there. Cause maybe, I don't know. I kind of want to see that scene again and see, in the, if I pay attention to the background, do I see somebody buy that? <laughs> I don't know. Like, because, because I was looking at other things. So I, that's just, I loved, loved the, the, how layered all of this, um, all of this is. Um, well, you, 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 you could say that he's getting the audience to complete that joke in their heads. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. It's unnecessary. And this is where you can see like, like, okay. So to complete that cheese joke, you probably would need to cut away to a close up of somebody's face tasting a right. sponge. And he's like, well, I don't want to do that. No. I like, well, it's already there. Um, it's, it's interesting. I was thinking about words to describe what I love about this movie. And I came up with words, but I feel like some of them contradict each other. Mm. Because So for one thing, this, this movie is deeply democratic and we can talk about that. Um, we already have a little bit that the, the one star in this movie actively doesn't want to be in this movie and is like like keeps fading away and the one person people are looking for keeps disappearing in the movie um but the two words that contradict each other is that especially as we move further into this movie move into the nightclub scene there is this degree of like anarchy happening on the screen mm -hmm. everything's happening but at the same time, this is maybe the most choreographed movie I've ever seen in my life because mm -hmm. it, you couldn't actually do what he's doing anarchically. Like it has to be everybody needs to know where they are because there's five jokes happening at the same time, all crossing over each other on screen. So this can't be accidental. Like so. So it is it is simultaneously anarchic and deeply choreographed. <laughs> uh, and And it's just like that. I just looked, I just felt like I was watching a master at work. Um, but a master, it's one thing to say like Chaplin is a master at physical comedy and these things, but like Tati has to be a master at like choreographing and marshalling all of these people because there is, it is, it is not a, a screen filled with, you know, great comedians pulling off physical comedy. It is a whole bunch of people doing things and this whole dance works. And, and most of them are amateurs. Yeah. You know, I mean, all the American women, they're just from a, a nearby uh, NATO base. Um, and, and Tati loved to work, loved to work with amateurs in the same way that, uh, uh, the great French director Brisson loved to work with, with amateurs, because I think what you've captured or, or touched on Sam is, is it, it, this is a paradox of any art, I think, especially film art. And that is that you need to be, you need a high degree of artifice in order to create something that looks real or lifelike. So, right. I mean, in other words, if, if you, I mean, to me, that's, that's actually a deep paradox about art because we, we want very skilled actors to create life for us. Whereas if you just take an amateur and put them in front of the camera, by and large, we're going to say, oh, that person is, yeah, that's, that's, that's not a satisfying performance. That's, that's not lifelike, although they are being lifelike. And yet somehow, quote, method acting is something that we see as, as more like real life than real people. So to me, I think that that's that's the kind of paradox that the Tati is capturing. Like if you just went into a nightclub and just set up a camera with a bunch of people moving around, it wouldn't have nearly the satisfying aesthetic quality that Tati creates, even though you would still say, oh, that looks like chaos. 
So I, I, all I'm doing is is expanding on your observation that this is yeah. in fact paradoxical because in fact that is that is the case. Well, there there's, there was a great I was reading um, I think this was in the Criterion the essay on the Criterion website. Um, Stuart Clowan uh, said uh, at the moment before action Tati was a god. At the moment after he was just another reveler in the crowd he um, <clears throat> the crowd he he called up dancing around um in a building he constructed apollo and dionysus at once so he is both the (laughs) the the person who creates it the logical mind behind all of it but then what he creates is you know yeah it's you have if you haven't seen this movie and you're listening to this you have to watch it and and you have to allow it to build to that nightclub scene because that is maybe one of the great scenes in film I've ever seen in terms of if you actually think about what he's doing there and how long he does it for it's I, 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 I just, it's amazing. No, that is a really good point. I kept wondering how long can he sustain this? How is he going to keep kind of building it? How is he going to keep finding different directions to go in? It's about and, 45 minutes, right? I know. I know. And, and I have to say at this point, Sam, there's a, there's a really key word that we have not used and that is auteur. That, that, I mean, this is, he is in a sense, I have to say the ultimate auteur and he was, he was a complete control freak on the set. For example, he, he fired some grips because, uh, at one point they were standing off to the side talking about something that didn't have anything to do with the film and he fired them, uh, because they weren't concentrating on the film. I mean, there was nothing about their job at that point. They needed to be, they they didn't need to be doing anything because they'd already set up the lights. And so there wasn't anything for them to do, but Tati thought that this meant that they weren't really invested in what he was doing. So, I mean, this is really, uh, I mean, Tati invested literally everything of his life on this film. He became bankrupt. He lost his family house. He lost the rights to his own films as a result. Um, I mean, this 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 ruined his life in some respects, and yet at the same time, it was the the ultimate expression of his art. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, can we maybe we can just kind of walk through the uh, walk through the the film because because the other part of this is like this is an extremely interesting and funny film. So I, maybe I want to hit some of these things that uh, that jump out to us. So there's kind of uh, what about four four or five set pieces to this to this um to this so we talked a little bit about the uh the airport uh to to begin with one of the things that i found interesting about that again because i did knew nothing about tati or hulo i felt like the airport scene what for me was about looking for a protagonist like i was like okay who is this going to be about and it starts with this couple talking in the lower left hand corner of the screen and clearly this man is about to go somewhere and she's talking about do you have an appointment and do you have this pack so i was like clearly this is our protagonist we never see that guy presumably he gets on a plane and flies to a different city you know um uh and then we also get the the introduction of this american uh, group of tourists uh which was interesting to me because it sets up one of the both visual jokes and sad commentaries of this uh mm. because i don't know about you but my favorite city in the world is paris and mm. i'm thinking about this group of people coming to visit paris and my initial thought was i am so excited for you i love paris you're going to get to see all of these things and then we go on to realize the Paris that they see has very little relationship to what you would think of as Paris. And the only way that we ever, uh, he does these heartbreaking jokes of when people open the door, the mm-hmm. exterior doors, you see a reflection of the Eiffel tower or the Arc de Triomphe. And you realize, Oh, Paris is right there. Why are you going to this trade show? Or why are you going to this thing? It's the thing, the thing you're, you should be excited about is right there. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I, especially yeah, especially that scene when she opens the door and the, yeah, there's the Eiffel Tower, which of course is not the real Eiffel Tower, but there's right. there the photograph of the Eiffel Tower. Yeah, and and, and that, that's one of the points that Tati is making, and that's and that's how as when the as the film goes along, you you slowly be and you slowly do come into contact with a little more elements of of the real Paris. But the other thing he's pointing out about the Paris they see is. Um, there's there's the little flower there's the little flower stand and that's that's the only glimpse you get of anything natural in this in this city that that uh, that he's created so he's trying to make it as sterile and as unfrench as possible to point out what's missing well and and even the the idea that that Barbara is trying to take a picture of the flower mm. stand and it's impossible to take a picture of the flower stand without something from this modern Paris 
popping into frame. Mm-hmm. You know, there's all, always somebody walks by or something, um, something else, or, or somebody else looking for Paris gets in the way and makes her stand in her in their picture. I love that scene too, where it's like she just cannot get a picture of this old lady with the flowers. But at the same time, I think it's a commentary. There's no connection between her and the old lady. Like that doesn't happen until later. It's more like it's the typical tourist thing, right? Mm-hmm. Here's a, here's here's something that oh, this is so classical Paris. I'll take a picture of it. And so I think that's also what Tati is kind of getting at. Like you can't just you can't just treat other people as though they are sort of uh, souvenirs to be picked up. And so I think that's why she she ends up not being able to really get that picture. So then from there, we go to the to the office building. We've talked a lot about this as well, this sort of labyrinth of glass and steel boxes and boxes within boxes and boxes on top of boxes. Um, we get that great computer that the guy is is uh, is working on to try to call um, <laughs> to try to make a call. And that that that's one of the more sort of dehumanizing moments of just like he doesn't even know what he's doing. It feels like he's just trying to do something with that. Um, you also get uh, one of the other great running jokes i don't even know what the joke is but it's but i love the chairs the chairs that like deflate and then inflate again so hulo discovers them and if you pay attention in the movie almost everywhere you go there are these chairs yes (laughs) and and they they seem to speak to like uh maybe a modern um a modern comfort that i don't know that anybody really wants. like it i don't see what would be attractive about that it seems like a chair you sink into too much but then it just sort of pops back but they are everywhere in almost every scene you can find i think in like the apartments they have those chairs i think they're in a lot of different places well they're kind of they're kind of a whoopee cushion in a way um but the other thing is that they, they are part of that standardization that that tati is critiquing he um and this is interesting to me this is an observation of him in the 60s he talked about, and he didn't use the word globalization, but he talked about the idea that no matter where you go, things now all look the same. So what's the point of traveling? Uh, and I think mm-hmm. maybe the chairs are just kind of a little reference to that. Of course, we, we have to mention a couple of things that go on in, in, in this building. Uh, in addition to the fact that when he's in that waiting room, it's like he's you, you get another paradox, right? You're behind these transparent glass walls and you're completely invisible um but we also get that long and this is his use of sound again that long approach down the hallway by jaffard and at one point he actually had the actor kind of stand in place to make it look like his walk was was even longer the other thing i absolutely love the thing that's completely brilliant is when at one point again hulot is trying to find jaffard and he's looking out he's looking out of the building and he thinks that Jafard is outside, right? So he goes outside, but it turns out Jafard is behind him and he's been reflected in the glass. So the way that he uses glass as both a transparent and a reflective surface simultaneously, it's absolutely brilliant. So, you know, you get that other scene where the guy is, is going to light the cigarette and he doesn't realize that there's glass between the between the two of them. So he has to come around to the door. Um, I mean, just that in itself is is absolutely brilliant. Yeah, I, that was one of my favorite, uh, both gags and commentaries that, that, that he's, he's this person you've been looking for is right next to you, but you see them in this reflection. So you, you're, you're chasing the reflection rather than the thing. Yeah. I, that, and, and, and the fact that he pulled that visually off so well that I actually thought for a second, is he over there? I, I thought he was, I thought he was, you know, and then you realize, no, the thing you thought was a reflection is in fact a reflection. But it's it's so well th- that shot is so well designed that you're not sure what you're seeing. And of course, the payoff, which I love, Sam, is ultimately he and Jafar do meet up completely accidentally on the street. Mm-hmm. So he, I, I, I love the way he completes that. Right? It's completely outside of any any plan, any official site. It's just the guys walking his dog, and they and they happen to come uh, meet each other. Of course, you never know why they're meeting each other. You never right. know what the purpose of their connection is. But that doesn't matter. They they connect. Yes, yes. Uh, so then the next set piece is the sort of consumer trade show. I don't know what what else we would call that. Um, which is full of gadgets that nobody needs, like a broom with headlights or silent slam. I love the silent slamming doors. Uh, and, and I love that the the sales pitch, I think for those was in French, but it's like, you get it, you get what they're saying. And it's just, and it's basically like, look, nothing, you hear nothing when you slam the door. And it, uh, um, so, so I, I, I loved, I, I love that. And that was also where we get kind of the, 
for me the heartbreaking of the like why is this tour group going to a consumer trade show in paris well the, the wonderful irony of that silent door is when the manager is angry at, at hulot because he thinks he's the guy that was rifling through the desk right he tries to express his anger by slamming the door but there's there's no sound when he right. does that. Yeah. Right. The, right. The, the, other, the other thing I love is the uh, are the um, trash receptacles made to look like Greek. Oh, I forgot about those. Yes. Yeah. So they're, they're, um, I, I forget. It's it's actually got it's like throw it out Greek style is the name of it or something like that. And so again, it's it's another it's another throw yeah throw out Greek style. It's it's another commentary on you know you get this great classical architecture and what you do is you turn it into a functional uh, trash receptacle. It's just it's it's just a almost a throwaway joke literally so right 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 uh from there we move to the apartments um which is one of the more i mean in a movie full of stunning visuals one of the more stunning visuals and a, a spot where the wide shot and i imagine i imagine seeing this in 70 millimeter was mm, just mm. something to not not to be believed um you get these basically four cubes of glass windows for four apartments, but they basically look like you're watching a TV show. It looks like, like they look like TV screens because it's dark outside and these, these um, apartments are lit up. Uh, and it, you know, it made me think of, uh, you know, this is, this is both a, like a weird joke because who would ever live in an apartment like this? But, you know, in, in 1949, Philip uh, Philip Johnson's glass house, right? Is this mm. you know piece of modern architecture to say actually this is maybe how we have a um, uh, how we have a a peaceful society? Is if everyone lives in glass houses, if yep. everyone's transparent and open, this is what will keep us from the next world war. And instead, we get this strange thing of these people who are living in close proximity, kind of like the cubicles, living in close proximity to each other, but completely isolated from each other. But the way that it's shot, it looks like they're looking at each other when they're watching TV. Like it look like yes. sometimes it you can't see the TV. So it looks like they're in one big room talking to each other or looking at each other when in reality they're separated from each other. It's hard it's hard for me to watch that scene and not think about rear window, of course. And mm -hmm. uh you know that kind of voyeurism that's inherent in in cinema, which I don't think Chati is necessarily alluding to, but it's 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 this idea that we become spectators of other people's lives. And of course, the key thing about that whole scene is uh, it, we're we're always outside, and so we're watching these people inside. We can guess what they're talking about. We we see what they're doing, but but we're listening to the sounds of the street. And so it's a really interesting kind of blend of outside, inside. And I find a couple of interesting things that happen. One is the way Hulot ends up slipping and falling uh, as, though, as though the floor is kind of glass or, or, or ice, rather, in, 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 inside the apartment. So he's literally kind of out of his own element. And then at the end, he can't get out. The way, the, the way it's stuck in the lobby. So in a sense, the apartment complex, I think, is a is a recreation of the industrial uh, of, of, of the of the glass office building at the beginning. So I think he's kind of connecting those those two things, especially through the, the character of the old of, of Hulot's old friend, who is obviously caught up in consumerism. You know, he's got this fancy car. He's got this fancy apartment. This is all about modern life. And Hulot literally can't stand it because he falls down. It's just it's just not a place he can live. Another film that that made me think of um, uh, was a 2009 documentary by uh, Andy Timoner uh, called We Live in Public, which is a, a documentary about the kind of late 90s. So early Internet and, mm. and uh, people who were sort of pushing the edges of that and how dark and prophetic some of that was. And it's interesting, even if you look at the movie poster for We Live in Public, there's a degree to which it looks like this scene. It's it's, it's more mm. cubes, but it's all these people in cubes. And it's this idea that we are, again, uh, this technology is isolating, but we're also kind of on display. And that, that that's either, that's the trap and maybe the value of these things, you know, simultaneously. So, so it made me think of that. It made me think of like, like this is predating this idea that although these are windows, it, if you're onto the exterior, it feels like everybody is both watching a screen, but everybody's also on screen and you can, you can jump around and look at different people and, 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 and peer into their lives in that way, where kind of the idea of the, the private is kind of melting away. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and then we get to, I think the, 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 the best set piece of this whole thing is the 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 royal garden nightclub um 
<laughs> so it's opening night for this nightclub, and you you right away get the idea that we are going to be watching a uh, a train that is building the tracks right in front of it. That this is a nightclub that is not ready to open, but they're opening, and we're seeing all the uh, the the little things there. Um, and this had this is the most loaded with with i mean this is this is a scene i think you could probably watch 10 times and still keep finding little things um again the the, the big joke is how long can he do this and the, the answer is about 45 minutes it just <laughs> and, and, and it builds like at first you start with an empty restaurant and you introduce a couple people into and this kind of feels like a play right like you introduce mm-hmm. a couple people they sit at a table it's like okay i know there's the rich American guy. Okay. Here's these people. Here's this older couple who is going to order the fish. Here's the, but then he just like, okay, more people, more people, more people. So, so that it just, it ends up like overflowing in a kind of way. Um, maybe the best joke of the whole thing is the, uh, the waiter who stripped for parts, um, yes, yes. his, his, uh, his, his jacket tears. So he has to go sit out on the terrace cause he's not allowed to be in the restaurant and people keep other waiters. Who's, things of theirs get damaged, keep trading with him. So he, you know, he ends up getting a, a different jacket. He ends up getting uh, shoes. Does he get a different pair of pants? Oh, you know, his pants rip and then he gets somebody else's jacket, different pair of shoes, a, a different tie. And it's just this whole mm-hmm. idea of like, like he is being harvested by the other people and he's left to just stand there. And that, and that they keep coming back to that throughout the night. It's one of the, it's one of the, the, few running jokes that he keeps going back to to pay off on again and again and again and you just wonder how many times can they do this to this guy yeah and it's also part of his common a kind of social exclusion you know the nightclub starts out as a place that's very you know trying to be very posh and very exclusive and uh so you can't have people like a waiter with that rip with those ripped pants there but ultimately of course by the end of the evening it becomes a very democratic place which is literally falling apart um Two of my well, there's, there's just three. I just mentioned three jokes in this in, in the well, four. One is the people that never get to eat the fish, uh, and, and of course the fish keeps the fish gets prepared about three or four times, right? So who knows how salty and peppery it is, and how. But the other thing I love is I think it's the first scene when the fish is being prepared. This gets back to the tile joke, right? The waiter comes in and he's uh, it's and he is uh, preparing the tile, so he's putting the um, the adhesive on it, and he's doing that simultaneous. This is where Tati's playing with perspective. He's doing it simultaneous with the other waiter who's preparing the fish. So you see the guy slapping the adhesive onto the tile, and you see the guy putting the sauce on the fish, and it's like it's all the same thing. Masonry cooking, it's the, <laughs> it's, it's the same thing. Um, the other the other fantastic um, uh, joke, which. I, I, one commentator says, I don't know how they did this was when the door shatters Yes, and Tati and, and the, and, and the doorman are both arguing, you know, he's pulling it one way, he's pulling it the other way. And the thing just shatters. It's, 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 it's gorgeous. Uh, and then of course you have the whole commentary on, well, even though there's no physical door anymore, there's still a barrier and I'm going to maintain. So you get that wonderful pantomime. Well, and, 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 the, and I will say that that pantomime is so well done that there's moments where I'm like, Oh, I forgot that's not a door because yeah. you see him holding the doorknob at the right spot and he yeah. swings it both ways. But then you realize, wait a minute, he is just standing. When he thought of that joke, that must have been just like one of his great days. Just like, yeah. what if we do this and what if we keep doing it? And then, and then the final one for me, it's kind of an obvious physical gag, but I had to back up because I missed the beginning of it is when the nightclub gets so hot. And they finally get the the AC working, and that uh, that um, the airplane plastic model of the airplane, yeah, that deflates and then it inflates. I just I I saw it inflating, and I realized, oh, I missed I missed its deflating, so I had to back up to see where it was actually all deflated. Well, another great joke there is, uh, I think, in the middle of that when the when the air conditioner first kicks on, and you see the woman's back, yes. and like the skin on her back like you realize it's a jet engine she's yes. right right behind and then and then when they shut it off it just sort of slides back into where it's supposed to be um little little jokes like that are are, are very fun and then and then i and then you have the kind of breakaway republic nightclub with the uh the american businessman who has his own little exclusive vip thing when that thing falls down and it, at first you're like what is he doing? But then it's like people just sort of go along with it. And there's people sitting in his section and he's inviting people in and out. He's putting people up on stage. Um, yeah. I, I just, again, the, the fact that that just keeps 
it's only additive. They just keep adding and it's like nobody ever leaves and more people just keep coming in. Um, I'm excited to watch this movie with other people and just to get to that scene again and, and watch it again. Well, I also like the suggestion, Sam, that it's not that democracy devolves into anarchy. It's that anarchy can actually become democracy. Mm -hmm. Uh, At least I think that's what's happening. Yeah. And you get the different, the different performers coming mm-hmm. up and um uh, and everything and then we we end on um the uh the the carousel traffic circle um which is i mean i, I love that the idea of a parisian traffic circle especially the like four lane like traffic circles in minnesota great right they they help you navigate traffic but like a four lane traffic circle i don't know why you'd ever be on the inside and i don't know how you'd ever get out of it so it is both a tool of absurdity like like i don't i i, I don't know why those exist but it's also this moment for humor and uh celebration I mean, he takes the most maybe the most painful thing for modern life he trap like terrible traffic and says what if we turn this into a child's carousel and it's this it's beautiful and, and it's it's and it's another little visual uh, joke with sound because the carousel starts after the guy put the guy puts his coin in the parking meter mm-hmm. right and, and and that turns the carousel on I exactly just, I just that. and it's like it's such a difference between entrapment in those vertical spaces an entrapment in a circular space. Mm-hmm. So rather than rather than being being a trap, it becomes a kind of joyful movement uh, around and around and around. And arguably, it's saying you know we we have a choice in how we view the things around us. Yeah, we can view this as actually absurdist hell, where you're literally just moving in a circle, going nowhere. But that's also what a carousel is, and it's like. It can be either of these things, and part of this is how you view it. You know, your your point of reference to it. Um, so I, yeah, I, and then there's also the 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 window reflection that I love all the the ways that he like creates up and down motion along with mm-hmm. circular motion. There's the woman on the back of the motorcycle that keeps like popping up, and it looks like she's riding a carousel. And when they're when they're tilting the window, it looks like the bus yeah. is moving up and down. Even though everybody is static in traffic, he creates that kind of movement. And the cars, the two cars going up and down. Oh yes, yes, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Again, like a carousel. Oh, I love this movie, Bear. Is there other things you want to talk about? I just want to say one more thing that the the film is in color. It's the only film that Tati did in in well his his first film or second film was uh, he shot it in both color and black and white, but the color print wasn't released anyway. So even though it's in color and it is on film stock, uh, it has a kind of um, it, it's not exactly desaturated, but it's a very subtle color. And um, and one of his collaborators said that Tati wanted it to be a color film that looked like it was in black and white. Uh, and she said that's one reason why he eschewed the use of red, which is kind of interesting to me. There may be a few red flowers, but by and large, there isn't people don't wear red. So he he wanted the color, but he didn't necessarily want the color to to dot to dominate. Obviously, it's important when the women's flower hats, but it's 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 kind of like uh, both black and white in color at the same time. It's kind yeah, of I mean, it, it's sort of like the the you take away everything organic so that flower stand stands out. And when you think about the gift that. Um, that uh that hulo gives um gives barbara right he gives her that scarf but he also gives her an actual flower yes right? which which actually um you, you watch the moment when she looks at the flower in the bus and then you look at the street lights up yep. above yeah uh, and, and actually yeah. this is an interesting point a, a visual joke that tati tried to do but didn't work was when the women were coming uh on the bus from the airport he he wanted the, the the street lights to look like there were flowers watering the hats. And mm. no matter how he set it up, he couldn't get it to work. And that's how the restaurant scene came about where the waiter pouring the champagne looks like he's watering the hats. So he knew that was a gag he wanted, and then he just had to figure out a different way to do it. Anything else that you wanna you wanna bring up as our Oh, just one more visual joke. I, I love I love the scene of the priest in in the drugstore and uh, and the, the the halo that's created behind his head because yeah, I mean we could do this all day, Sam. Right, I mean, right, right. Just so much here. Yeah. So so if if somebody watched play, oh, I guess one other thing I need to say about playtime. This isn't even a little observation. The fact that this movie's called Playtime. Oh yeah, this is a movie about. Yeah. that's mostly people in office drudgery and all of these things and and i mean the title of this is not lost on me that it's like 
or this can be playtime. Like, 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 like we can find the beauty, the humor, the, in the absurdity, in even in the construction of this world. I, I, I really like that as a title. Yeah. Um, so if somebody wanted to watch another Tati film, would you just go chronologically backwards? Would you start at the beginning? What would you do? I, I, might, I might go to Monsieur Hulot, which is okay. his third film. Yeah. Yeah. I think I go there. Yeah. All right. Uh, so what do you have for us for next week? Well, I'm going to break a self-imposed rule, Sam, because I really want to watch this film. Um, and it's only available, as far as I can tell right now, on the Criterion channel. So this is one more plug for the Criterion channel for our listeners who haven't made that very small investment in Criterion. By the way, you can see all of Tati's films on Criterion, along with some great extras. So one of my favorite directors that we have not talked about, we haven't watched any of his films yet, is Mike Lee uh from britain and the, the the slight connection i'll make to our current conversation is lee is a um is also a filmmaker who works improvisationally uh he does not work with he, he has a script outline but otherwise the film is improvised by his actors under lee's direction so i would like to watch what i think is probably his best film from 1996 secrets and lies which is available on the Criterion channel. And there's also three kind of short commentaries that go along with it. So um, I hope people can find, you know, you can find it on other places, maybe your local library or get yourself on the Criterion channel. There you go. I cannot wait. I remember this movie. I remember when this movie came out, cause this was in the Oscar. Yes. Um, th- this was an Oscar nominee for, uh, for a number of categories. So I know the title, but I don't know anything that it's about. Very excited to watch this Barrett. I can't thank you enough for, uh, for, for recommending playtime. Uh, I don't know. I don't know how to talk more highly about this movie. Um, it's very, very different than anything I've ever seen. And that's, I guess what I look for most of all is something that is utterly new and utterly unique and Tati knocked it out of the park with that. So thank you for recommending this. That is all the time that we have, but we will be back next week to talk about secrets and lies in the video store. <laughs>